0: Hello and welcome to Game Night. I'm your host, Dornell Tonight we're going to be talking about... Oh, let me check my notes. Role-playing games. That's it, role-playing games. Uh, joining me tonight is our fabulous co-host, Daddy Warpick. Good evening, sir. Our special guest tonight is a uh, longtime gamer. Uh, oh Wait, that Darnell. was for me? It was,
1: but... Sorry, I, I assumed you were going to introduce the guest first. My bad.
0: I'll, I'll, just, I'll just make you an say hello, and, and now you've interrupted my introduction.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm just the guy who, like, hangs around. I'm the ominous figure in the background that speaks occasionally, but other than that, just kind of stands there. I don't, I don't really, I don't know. I just wasn't expecting an introduction.
0: <laughs> I always tell everybody that you're here, because uh, everybody asks, who is that sexy, sexy beast <laughs> I see <laughs> on the podcast? I just wanted to make sure everybody knows. It is uh, I. <laughs> uh, great to have you as always. Uh, for those of you who wonder why Daddy Warpig's always on these things, I don't know if I've explained this before on the show, but uh, he and I met through uh, role playing games, and so uh, when it came time to do a role playing game centered podcast, you know, Daddy Warpig is the guy I would have brought on, regardless of our you know relationship on the Geek Gab Prime show, um, but. Uh, I digress a lot, leaving our special guest hanging. Uh, the uh, longtime gamer and uh, writer, Douglas Cole, uh, who runs a blog, and uh, you do a podcast on YouTube, I believe. And I uh, occasionally
2: do, that's right. I call it the Firing Squad, and it's when I can line somebody up, I do interviews of arbitrary length uh, on various topics.
1: It, correct me if I'm wrong, but are, are you not the person who founded GURPS Day? I am.
0: This is something new, and this is going to be a great experience for me because I've—I'm not a GURPS guy. I've avoided that throughout my, you know, many many years of gaming. Uh, that's one game that I've sort of avoided playing. I,
1: I have uh, assiduously avoided playing GURPS. However, I've bought a lot of GURPS, and I would like to say that of all the editions of GURPS, that I most assiduously avoid third edition is my choice.
2: <laughs> um. You know, I I think that, in a way, that's fair. By the time that third edition was ready to go to fourth edition, um, and the reason, of course, why you would choose to do a fourth edition is because um, GURPS is a game that is unusual in that it is a subtractive toolkit. Um, They try and give you as many tools as possible in order to build whatever campaign you want. But that means that when it comes time to play, the game master has to cut away everything that isn't his campaign uh, and, and then go forward with that. Um, the additive nature of the supplements meant that, you know, there's a there's a joke meme kicking around that has GURPS books all the way into infinity and like, you know, one of them is like GURPS the World of Shrimp and, you know, GURPS Roto-Rooter and, you know, GURPS the Chicken Crosses the Road, plus a couple actual titles just to see if you're looking. Um, and and there was some truth to it uh i believe that fourth edition is much tighter um and uh it runs very well Uh, i've played it everywhere from 50 points to 1800 points um which is basically you know a bit above average uh characters everywhere to uh captain america or black widow level uh augmented humans and people with powers um and with the right handling it can play very well um i know that we'll talk about gen con in a bit but i spent a lot of time um uh playing dungeon fantasy the role-playing game uh, it is a distilled box set with spectacular production values um much better than the usual Gerp's books uh, i will say uh GURP's production values are not horrible with 4th edition, uh, but they really tried to step into the, yes, this is a beautiful book to look at. Um, And I played for five and a half hours with Sean Punch, the line editor. Um, And Yeah, no, it was cool. It was cool. Um, And uh, they've done a really nice job of distilling in this box set dungeon fantasy style adventuring, which isn't necessarily dungeons and dragons with the edges filed off it's net hack it's um uh, a lot of the old uh 1980s computer games um so it's more than just the standard trope there is some of that in it but there's there's a lot more influence than the direct lineage that you would get through the dungeons and dragons type licenses
1: i uh My opinion on 4th edition was negatively influenced when I started picking through GURPS powers. Now, I understand now that it's a generic toolkit to build a bunch of different power sets for whatever application you want. When I first read it, I I read through most of the book, and I'm like, what the hell good is this book? This is an entire book that makes absolutely no sense to me. It was aimed at, at people who are hardcore GURPSers, and it just baffled me.
2: So, so this is where, so I, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna mostly agree with you there. The power system is at the same time the most flexible and my least favorite part of GURPS. Um, that being said, I prefer magic as powers um, to magic as skills for various reasons. But let's not digress. Uh, the power system is a toolkit. Uh, it is a broad worked example of how to use the advantage system to get powers. And what that really means is you find a couple advantages and then you hang modifiers on them until you have what you want. Um, If that sounds vaguely like champions, you're not wrong. Um, I was just about to say, uh, I've
0: I've spent many hours in front of a hero, fifth edition book going, hmm, how do I model this
2: power? <laughs> and, and, and that's exactly correct. And if you look at the original, well, at least the, the original copy of GURPS that I had was 3rd edition and maybe even 3rd edition revised. And right there in the introduction, uh, it, it I believe that it says that one of the influences on GURPS was the Champions uh, game, which had come out uh, roughly contemporaneously with that. I think the fantasy trip was first, and then when Steve Jackson game Steve Jackson, not Steve Jackson games, um, Got that back. He ma he was inspired somewhat by champions and and came out with what uh, what GURPS would become. Um, I may have some of that history wrong, but I know that uh, it was a it was a strong influence at the time, or I think I believe that it was a strong influence at the time. Um, I should have asked Steve. I, I saw him like ten times this weekend. Um, um,
1: I think that's a great point because GURPS and champions are kind of the two different directions you could take a point build system. Um, There aren't any other real approaches other than champions. Champions is entirely abstract, it's entirely mechanically focused, and you figure out how to fiddle the points to get the mechanics to represent some concrete real world thing or not concrete real world thing, some fantastic thing. Whereas GERPS is entirely the opposite. They start with real world physics, scholarly based stuff that sometimes they even reality test to make sure that what their description is. And then they build mechanics uh, behind that, but there's no you know, formless, vague, generic toolkit uh, until powers to build anything. And so GURPS is a series of concrete objects that just are what they are because that's what the object is in the real world, or that's what we could figure out it would do in the real world with uh, in the cases of spells and things like that. Um, but uh, Champions is entirely the opposite direction.
2: Yeah, I, I, think that, I think that that's fun, that that is at the core true. I mean, one could quibble. Not I, I don't plan to quibble on it, but you could shave. But yeah, that's basically true. GURPS likes to model itself in the real world, because if you take a 105-pound blonde girl uh, and call her Buffy and give her super strength, you're going to expect that that super strength allows her to leap moderately sized buildings in a single bound. Uh, and GURPS wants to try and make that happen. Uh, whereas with the champions you say i want to leap it's moderately sized buildings in a single bound maybe two bounds and you buy that power with probably super leaping or, or whatever um, um so, so so
0: what i love hearing ab- when when you guys talk about these generic games like that what i love hearing about is is this totally different perspective on building a game and and that's what it is because I like I said I've spent hours staring at a hero fifth edition book going all right well how am I gonna do this right it, and it's it it's one of their greatest strengths is that you get to pretty much build the sorts of classes and powers and, and characters that you want but it's a lot of upfront work by the game master isn't it
2: yes that is very true and the the one big knock on GURPS that has real merit um, there are many small knocks there, uh, um, personal preference. The one bit of GURPS that has real merit is the extent to which it is front loaded. Um, my classic anti example of that is the Star Wars West End games D6 system, where after five to seven minutes, uh, you could. So once I'll, I'll turn that around, an actual example. Um, the. Uh, I once took 15 of my friends in college, sat down between somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes, and we were ready to play a gigantic campaign in Star Wars, the the, the West End D6. It was just like, okay, you want to be uh, uh, you want to be a bounty hunter. Here's the template. Write down these dice. Allocate these dice. Here's your equipment. It was five things, right? and, and it was the classic thermal detonator, knife, another knife, a third knife blaster pistol a second blaster pistol let's go um and that was it and and that was the, about the fastest and with if if you don't go crazy uh like a game like swords and wizardry or fifth edition dnd um even pathfinder uh at first level you can be playing very quickly and there's a very low barrier to adventure um that can be true of gurps it really can i swear to god um However, both the player and the GM have to make a conscious effort to do it that way and say, okay, I kind of want a guy that's like this, and I'm going to give him a couple of skills, and he needs combat reflexes because he's a badass, um, and let's go. And, but you know, one of the things that Sean Punch said in one of the interviews that I did with him on the firing squad was in third edition with the quantum of purchase being a half point – hundred point character you could in theory you never did but you could have to make 200 choices before you could start play per character now you never did that but that tells you the kind of front loading that it's possible to do uh if i want to do a self-inflicted wound i wrote an article that is the crunchiest article to ever appear in pyramid magazine um it it landed me in TV tropes for the third time, um, <laughs> because it includes something called the nasty transcendental equation table. Um, because if you model the physics of the longbow, um, you work out like having to do a, like a sine theta over theta kind of thing, or you're integrating it, or something nasty. Um, and because of that, um, I needed a table to basically because as you pull back the bowstring. Um, the curvature of the limbs change and that changes how much the bow limbs are moving and blah, blah, blah. The point was, is that there's a reason why you need a supercomputer to get bow and arrow physics right. And I tried to do it in an article. I mostly succeeded. Um, But all of that physics was to write down a self-consistent stat line that once you had it, that's all you needed to do is say my bow shoots this far and it does this damage and its accuracy plus two. That's the game stat that matter. Everything else is so that if you wanted a titanium carbon fiber composite longbow with an Ultratech battery that added energy to it, you could do it. Um, you know, and, and, this is why I don't play GURPS. Which is but but see here's the thing. As a campaign guy, if I'm writing a if I'm writing a campaign, if I'm gonna play a campaign, what I will do is say, oh, you want a bow, here it is. And depending on the kind of campaign, um, what I may do is say, Yeah, the longbow does thrust plus two, move on. And that's the basic rule. The pyramid article is not for people who just want to go casually play. The Pyramid article is for people who, like myself, I'm big into firearms. And like a 45 ACP will do 2d6 of damage, a 9mm will do 2d6 plus 2. A strong guy with a bow will out-penetrate both of those, because the scaling is old fantasy games, that actually the scaling of the damage for bows hasn't changed since the fantasy trip, uh, more or less. Um, And so it's a little weird when an arrow can do to a suit of armor or or a bulletproof vest what a very powerful firearm can't. And that always bugged me. And so I wanted to go fix it. Is it the rule that you need to do? Absolutely not. It is strictly optional and you have to go find it Uh, in Pyramid 333. um, Now you can go find it. Um, But you have to go find it and really want it and care about it to do it. Um, Most people don't. Uh, one of my good friends and co-authors, Peter Del Orto, um, would never bother with it. And he's one of the more successful Dungeon Fantasy GMs. Uh, he runs a very stripped-down game. Uh, it's gone for years, and it's ridiculous fun. Uh, you can read the session write up. So GURPS can play light and fast, uh, or it could be over overburdened with any rule that you want um, but to, to take something like the article that I wrote and say that's why I don't play GURPS I think does disservice to a system that is flexible enough to accept that while still being at the very core 3d6 roll move on
0: all right I'll have to try it out sometime
2: you know I, I would be happy to host a session um, the, uh, the dungeon fantasy role-playing game box set just came out, um, because I was a, uh, high tier backer of the Kickstarter. I have it. Um, I would be happy to run through the, the basic scenario with the pre-generated characters, um, and, uh, and give you guys a chance to, uh, to do that. I am not necessarily the world's greatest game master, but I, I just, uh, lost my convention GM virginity at, uh, at Gen Con this last weekend, um. Not uh, not in, in GURPS, actually. It was for uh, D&D 5th edition. Um, but uh, the uh, interestingly enough, the dungeon grappling rule set was a modification of the GURPS technical grappling rules that I wrote.
0: Cool. Well, we'll have to do it live on stream then. Sure. I'll set that up. Well, you, mentioned a couple, you mentioned Gen Con a couple of times, and you mentioned a couple of cool things that people don't realize. Uh, because I'm not a con guy, so it doesn't... Like it doesn't occur to me how big Gen Con is and you're you're like you're casually meeting up with line editors on products, you're, you said, you know, you spoke with Steve Jackson, you know, several times that's great. Um, I'd love to hear more about that so so Gen Con was just this past weekend um, and it's massive nowadays.
2: It is. This was the 50th anniversary of Gen Con, uh, and in fairness, I the last Gen Con I was at was in Milwaukee in 1994, or something like that. Um, oh. I have not been to a role-playing convention since then. Um, I've been to Comic Cons and stuff, largely, uh, especially recently, because my now seven-and-a-half-year-old daughter uh, loves dressing up as comic book superheroes. Um uh, which, you know, occasionally means that uh, I get to dress up as a comic book superhero myself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so but after describing Gen Con, my, my seven and a half year old is like, I'm going next year. Uh, and then she heard about the game designer convention Metatopia, which is mostly about playtesting and getting great feedback for adventures and games and, and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, they're looking for people my age? You're taking me to that too, as a birthday present. I'm like, "Wow, this kid's a tough negotiator. Um, but yes, uh, Gen Con was kind of awesome. It was the 50th anniversary i, I I've heard something like over two hundred thousand people pass through the doors, um, although that might have been sixty thousand a day for four days i'm not I'm not sure how it, went, but it, it was packed. Um, but I'll tell you. They did a fantastic job of, of crowd control. And, you know, I was there to set it up and watch the carpet go down. And, and it was an amazing convention. It was very well handled.
1: I went, the last time I went to Gen Con was in 1997, which is the 30th anniversary of the okay. convention.
0: And you're old.
2: Yeah, that happens to us all.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so- if we're lucky. So what else? uh, What else? What did you do at at Gen Con? I I know that you mentioned something about uh, on your blog, something about a dungeon grappling session. Was that the fifth edition session you were talking about?
2: That is correct. Yes. So so my basic schedule was Wednesday was I'm part of the indie games designers network. uh, I think that was recommended to me by Ken Height as a way to, to network and, and get some help and advice on things and to give advice on, on other things. And um, so I, I joined up with those guys and, and uh, worked the booth. Um, so that was Wednesday was set up um, Thursday uh, was walking around in the morning and I worked the booth for five hours um, selling. Everything from Dungeon Grappling and the Book of the Tarasque, which are the most mainstream, to uh, very interesting, um, almost overtly political microgames uh, having to do with uh, um, uh, oppressed peoples and whatever. And so I had to get to know all that product. Um, I didn't have to agree or disagree with anything in particular, right? I'm there to rep as a professional. Uh, And so I had to know what it is, what the pitch was, who it appealed to. If someone was looking at this one product, they might like something else, Um, that kind of thing. Um, And so I did that for five hours on Thursday and five hours on Friday. Friday morning and Saturday morning, I ran my dungeon grappling uh, demonstration, two-hour session, short. Um, but I of course had prepared this gigantic scenario just in case they were my players were so good that they just ripped through it. Um and then on I was on a panel on how to get into the game design industry on saturday Saturday. Um and then I played Dungeon Fantasy the role playing game box set with the line editor for five and a half hours on Saturday. Sunday was my own until it came time to break down the booth and then it was uh Uh, a lot of lifting and sweating um and uh you know i'm uh i'm five eight and 180 pounds and and uh i'll tell you what though as as a group of people we need to stop skipping leg day (laughs)
0: yeah it's funny because i I just came from the gym uh, to come here i'm like lifting and sweating i pay people for that nowadays
2: right no and that's yeah yeah i worked out a few times today and and just Came back from my Viking martial arts class, which is the most deliciously impractical thing I've ever done. And I'm a gamer, so that's saying something. Um, but uh, Viking yeah, martial
0: arts—you—you are—you're in Minnesota, correct? I am. Okay, so everything is everything up there, Vikings?
2: You know, it—it it is, but that's only happenstance. Uh, it, it happens that the um, the group that I, I joined called Osfolk um just. The guy happens to be here um and you know they grew up here and then they went to california and then they came back and uh and he's into living history and he's a swordsmith he's also a phd operations research guy so he did all of the um artificial intelligence for activision for call of duty so when you stick your head around a corner the decision analysis was his work i think um, so really interesting guy um but He has been studying with various historical martial arts, historical European martial arts, HEMA, uh, guys for a while. Um, And I got involved in that in order to test some theories that I had to make shields a little more interesting. Um, You will hear me say as we talk about grappling that one of the problems with grappling is that it's boring um, in games. and same way in a way with shields and shields are plus two armor class and maybe there's something you can do with them um but i'd never used a shield and so i went there to learn to use a viking style shield and just had my eyes opened at how dynamic and versatile um, shield use is if you have a shield in your hand it is your primary weapon it's not just sitting there covering an angle. You are using it. You are manipulating. You are grappling with it. You are beating people about the face. You're pinning their sword arm to their shoulders so that you can do nasty things. It is very, very active, um, wow. at least the way that we're doing it. And yeah,
0: I, I recall that. I, I did a little bit of training with the SCA, which stands for Society of Creative Crazy Adults, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago. And, and yeah, we learned uh, similar things about the shield, that, that you actually use it to you know, push your way around the battlefield.
2: Right, and and you know the SCA because they have a strong and deserved focus on safety, um, their shields are a little thicker and a little heavier, and their weapons are blunt. And so some of the things that we've realized as you use historically accurate shields with sharp blades is how a swing that you throw it at if 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 you just swing and you get it intercepted by a shield the sword is probably going to stick into the shield The viking shield the viking shields are very thin on the edge um like four and a half millimeters including the leather wrap thin um and it's less than a quarter inch like two tenths of an inch um so they were really thin and light and so but if you get your sword embedded in them um it's trapped and then you will have your sword taken away
0: that that's yeah that seems fair i mean and and you, you make a good point about the big blunt sca weapons i mean you're basically just hitting each other with logs uh which is great and and tons of fun but it's sort of it reinforces that whole i don't know i, I want to say you know stereotype of you know swords as something that you like swing around and whack people around with when i mean if you think if you think about if you think of the sword as a sharpened lever uh and and think about how people actually would fight with the sword then you do end up in a situation where you're not necessarily swinging it around bashing people's shields with it
2: that is correct that is correct um, especially if you look at uh the most recent academic study um by uh uh, i think it was alan williams who originally wrote the knight in the black furnace the knight and the blast furnace uh, and has since uh, written a book all about medieval swords you know, this is not something where you're where you're going out and your typical sword is really high Rockwell hardness and really great metallurgy and blah blah blah. Um, you know, it's it was. Uh, I don't know. I, on the one hand, I am learning over and over and over again that our ancestors were not stupid. They were doing this, fighting for their lives, um, and so they did it the best that they could. Um, and they had no idea what chemistry was. They had no idea what a metal matrix was. They had no idea what a you know diffusion rates or case hardening was um, in those terms. But they knew what made a good sword, and they knew what would keep them get them onto the battlefield, keep them alive, and get them off the battlefield. Uh, the important thing is to kill the enemy so that they become loot. If you get killed, you're the loot, um, and 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 so all kinds of stuff like that that we're realizing on how they fought and how the casualty. Casualty counts, which are relatively speaking fairly low on a percentage basis, maybe make some sense when everyone is actually fighting defensively, uh, because the most important rule of battle is don't die. Um, And when you fight like that, as opposed to, oh, I want to see if I can hit you first, because really there's no danger here because we're all encased in nice, safe, hatted armor, and if I hit you first and you hit me, I win. Right? Once you start getting into that kind of thing, which you see a lot in, in sport type stuff, uh, it, it stops being of lethal effect and starts being something else. Now, I have a lot of respect for the athletes there, so I don't want – there's nothing poo-poo about them, and they can probably kick my ass. Um, but it's different, right? It, it's different. and. Yes.
0: Speaking of which, have, have yeah. you seen the uh, Russian athletes? They actually have like uh, medieval uh, art, sword and armor
2: uh, yeah, and battle leagues. Yeah, and they unscientifically beat the hell out of each other, yeah.
0: That's hilarious. Uh, but, it, it's, but It's
2: hilarious, but it's not probably representative at all of what battlefield soldiers who could get arms lopped off would do.
0: No, it, it's probably more representative of how awesome and scary Russia can be sometimes. I concur. So <laughs> going back to uh, going back to gaming bringing that background to gaming. Yes. I totally lost the thread there. Uh, we were talking about actual medieval fighting and
2: we were and it was it was part of it and the reason why and it actually so we'll, I'll, let me I'll try and tie this all together. You had mentioned how Gurps people do a lot of research writing a fifth edition game where I wanted shields to be better writing a grappling manual where, you know, I've done some do, Um, So I've done some grappling, I've done some throwing, I've done a lot of joint manipulation. It's what the art is. Think of it as a combination of hop keto, taekwondo, some jujitsu, and a bunch of weapon stuff. Um, so I've done some of that, right? I've done 10 years of that. Um, if you want something that is quick to play, but captures the essence, of fighting in these styles, it rather helps to do it yourself first, um, so that you know the kind of things that you do. Sort of, um, like,
0: sort of like writers, you know, write what you know, try to re- do your, your research ahead of time.
2: Correct. Um, and so, you know, be, for example, right, the dual, one of the things that I've done in the Dragon Heresy project that I'm working on, uh, which is a fifth edition SRD, uh, OGL uh, project that's huge um dungeon grappling actually came out of that because i got some advice from kevin crawford uh that i was going too far too fast asking for too much money uh and it stuck in my craw but of course he was correct um that it was just too big of an ask because um, i really want to make a big beautiful book blah, blah blah whatever um point is is that the grappling book actually came out of that um and as i was doing all of this stuff i really wanted to to say oh you know if we're going to do this and you know if i want monsters to be scary not because they drain your hit points because they grab you and drag you underwater then i need something that feels that way uh if i want shields to be cool because you can do manipulation and and open up somebody to to defense i didn't even know that that was part of shield use right for all i knew before i started using a shield i knew that they were probably pretty good against arrows which doesn't really come into play in DD. Plus two to armor class all yet um I was just like, well, you know, arrows and shields should be like, you know, anti-peanut butter and chocolate, right? But they're not. So what else is there? I go find out. I'm like, holy crap. So in Dragon Heresy, I have a, you know, a dual weapon style, fighting style, that's one-handed weapon and shield. But it's a dual weapon style because the shield is a weapon. Right, not just oh, I have a sh- I'm expert in the shield, so I get an extra plus one to armor class. No, it is a weapon. It does you know one d six. You can grapple with it. You can do all kinds of things. Um, and 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 when I say grapple, I mean you sort of picture wrestling, right? But grappling is just manipulating your opponent to limit their motion, in a broad sense. And you do that with a shield all the time. If I rush at you and pin your sword arm against your body, technically that's a grapple. That's not a strike.
0: Yeah, it, it, that's a good that's a good point. And and I'm I I really want to hear about this grappling book because I think in uh, most most DMs handle that sort of thing on the fly, which is perfectly fine for your regular game session. If someone if someone actually thinks about the game instead of treating combat as a menu of choices, which is your typical D and D player, uh, you know, someone who actually thinks and they say, hey, what if I want to pin this guy's weapon? Right and and old certain rule sets have that, but usually that's a, a rule you make up on the fly. They say, oh, you know, make an attack roll or make a strength roll or make an or, opposed roll. Or
2: an opposed exactly. An opposed check is the big one in Fifth Edition. That's right. So so I was even in GURPS, and I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind the clock a little bit. Even in GURPS, um the grappling system is you make an attack roll, the, your, your opponent makes a defense roll. So that's normal. So that's good. Uh, but then. What happens if you grapple somebody, then they are grappled. And it's kind of a condition. And they're minus four to dexterity, which has implications for offense, defense, dodging, whatever. Um, and and that's all fine. But that's all there is. You can't really grapple someone better unless you win a regular contest of, of, of grappling skill or strength or something like that, which is a really annoying mechanic where you just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. Um, so. What I thought is, and this has become a philosophy of mine, which is use what's there. Uh, It's called my rules for grappling rules, which in a way is translated into rules for game design. Um, Of course, rules exist to be broken, but use what's there. If you have a mechanic that you're using for combat, one needs to think very carefully about making the players and the game master do anything else but that. So, if you have a melee system that's roll 1d20 against an armor class and then roll damage, but your grappling system is this complicated flowchart, you have not served your gamers well. As well as you could. Please. Um, Rules are
1: a language to translate phenomenon into game mechanical terms. So, you can say we've got a grenade, we throw it into a room because the room is so small, we get overpressure, which causes extra damage. That's the real world phenomenon, and you use specific rules, uh, game mechanics to translate that into damage or whatever. Now, correct when you are designing a game system from the ground up, what you are doing is you are deciding on a vocabulary of game mechanics, that all of the phenomenon you're going, that are pertinent to your game, pertinent to the setting, pertinent to whatever you've put into it, you're designing the vocabulary that all of those mechanics are going to be expressed in, uh, or all of those phenomena are going to be expressed in this vocabulary. So whatever rules you choose, um, and you can choose you know, uh, attribute checks in D and D were really, really big in earlier editions where you would roll your D twenty under the attribute. Or you have in toward active defense, which is if you choose to actively defense against melee, you can't get below a plus one. You automatically get at least a plus one. So you automatically your defense is automatically better no matter what. Um, or whatever this is the vocabulary that you're establishing as a game designer. And if you're a game master, or if you're another game designer who comes along, what you have to do is you have to use the vocabulary that's there. And if you need to extend it, but what you choose to extend it with needs to be consistent with what's there so that the mechanics um, work with what everybody who plays the game, what everybody who runs the game, expect so it feels like a coherent system and not just a random assortment of mechanics.
2: Absolutely correct. However, what I will offer up is that for grappling, because it was not well understood as maybe as even as well as it is now, because mixed martial arts and jiu-jitsu and all that stuff is more common, like if you say, oh, I'm going to put them in an arm bar, these days pretty much everyone knows what that is. Um, it was pretty specialized for wrestlers, and even then you didn't see that because collegiate wrestling doesn't allow that kind of joint lock, although most of the wrestlers that I knew knew it and would do it to you if you pissed them off. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the point was is that the language of wrestling and grappling was not mainstream uh, for a long, long time, whereas beating people up in karate, chop, sake stuff was. Um you know, in the '80s, you get Steven Seagal and Aikido, and that was wow—you're throwing them around. Whatever. Point is, let me let me get back to what you just said. You were absolutely correct, but what I think a lot of game designers did was say, "Well, God, grappling is so different and detailed and technical. Surely we cannot use the same mechanics." Okay, hold right there for a sec. If you have learned expert fencing, if you have learned to be a great Boxer. If you have learned to be an expert martial artist of any type, and I'm going to mean martial artist as the art and science of beating the bejesus out of your fellow man, um, or killing them or dismembering them or whatever, it is complicated, it is technical, it is difficult, it has a lot to it, um, and if you could abstract all of that into roll 1d20 plus a bonus against an armor class, roll damage, you damn well can do it for grappling, and that's what I did. So, when it comes time to grapple in D&D, and GURPS too, um, you make a hit roll. If your opponent fails to defend, or if you don't have an active defense in the case of uh, D&D, if you you exceed a target number, then you roll damage. And the damage, you actually roll damage, and it's going to look like the same damage that you roll for melee combat or firearms combat. And it's going to be hopefully roughly on the same scale. Um, so if you're typically rolling 1d8 plus four or so in a in a fifth edition game, your grappling should be in that five or twelve point range. Um, and what I did was I said, well, the damage type, because fifth edition has a plethora of damage types. Well, let's add a new one: control. So you are doing control points instead of hit points. The more control you have, the more restricted your opponent is and hey fifth edition and pathfinder for that matter has this nifty set of conditions that goes from grab well i added grab but grappled to restrained to incapacitated which is like okay i've got your shirt okay i've got your arm okay i've got you in some kind of joint lock okay you're toast i've got you're tapping out you're screaming for your mom whatever um but let's say you want to defend against that grapple great you make an attack roll against my target number with any kind of penalties that you may that i may have imposed on you for that gra- that initial grapple if you are successful you roll damage and you can choose whether to simply grapple me back and we just tie each other up or you can counter grapple and your damage subtracts from my control and you go back and forth and that can last a long time But that's what grappling does. It can tie you up for a long time. Uh, As as Sean said when I made the GURPS proposal, it's very strange how in most role-playing games that when a big guy needs to distract strong guard so that fast guy can pick the lock, big guy goes over to pick a fist fight with strong guard and not grapple them and wrestle them around. Um, And it's usually because the mechanics are either arcane or cumbersome and... You know, it's why it's all totally D&D bad. bar fights end in weapons.
0: Yeah, I mean, the third edition was notorious. I mean, everybody knew just nobody grapples just because right. there's
2: no point to it. Please don't. Of- I will hit you with my book. Yes, I've been told that before. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the Yeah, and, and the point really is if the mechanics were basically don't try and do so much different, just integrate them with the usual thing, there's a lot you can do. And so I came up with this concept for, for technical grappling. Peter Delorto and I turned that into a 1,500 word article for Swords and Wizardry. And then when I got the advice that I was going too far too fast with the big Dragon Heresy project, I had a choice. I could either take Alex Macris's Adventure Conqueror King domain rules, which he had given me permission to use, and go fifth edition version of those, or a Dragon Heresy version of those, um, or the grappling system. And I'm like, well that belongs to Alex. He did it. They're his great ideas available under the open gaming license. Yes, I could modify them for fifth edition, but if anyone is going to do that, it should be him. It would be really crappy, I think, for me to take that and say, oh, I'm going to do something that Alex absolutely could do if he ever wanted to break into the fifth edition market. Um, So I'm not going to do that. I will take my grappling system, which is my own thing, and develop that into a fifth edition product. And then I realized that I could take the Sword and Wizardry, Pathfinder, and fifth edition, apply the exact same concepts with very small tweaks, and more or less cover all of that particular style of game and all derivatives of it uh, in a way that was well-integrated with the system. Um, and in playtesting, really provided another access for combat resolution that was entirely cool.
1: Um, I'm going to... Insert something real quick. Uh, I'm working on a big project I can't talk about um, yet in public on the air. And so uh, I've been using the hashtag, watch this space. And anytime someone brings up a subject that I really wanna talk about, but can't, I use watch this space so that uh, I can tag that for later. So when I can talk about it, I can remember to do it. Brad Walker, Bradford Walker in the chat mentioned, mentioned a critical uh, piece of my project that I can't talk about yet, but I want to say watch this space because when I can, I will.
2: Okay.
0: I I I love the idea. I, I'm a programmer by trade, so when when you tell me that you use that existing damage system and and compare it uh, to you know the conditions already present, for example, in fifth edition, that that seems elegant to me. It reminds me of a trick I use, I used a similar trick a few sessions ago in my ongoing after work game. I designed a disease on the fly that just that simply I just used the exhaustion table. I said it's right. you know it's a, it's a fast moving disease. Every time you every hour or whatever you fail a check, you move up one level on the exhaustion track. And after, you know, if you know that if you know the, the the track after your third exhaustion, um, you get disadvantage on your future checks so you're probably going to die once you hit that point
2: um, right and, yes and and i actually think that the only problem that i have with the exhaustion track is that um the consequences of exhaustion are so severe after the first or second level that 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 it's a disincentive to push your luck
0: yeah, that's a good point. You have to give them enough rope to hang themselves.
2: Yeah, exactly. The, when, exactly, whole, exactly, exactly. Yes.
0: The whole point <laughs> of the dungeon crawl is to, is to the, that's the, every turn is that interesting decision point where, okay, we have this many resources left, we're this far into the dungeon, we've acquired this much treasure, you know, stay or go.
2: Right, right. And I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm in the background, I'm playtesting a little bit, you know, for, again, for Dragon Heresy. It, you'll hear me say Dragon Heresy a lot. It's been all-consuming for the better part of a year and a half. I've got a great editor. I, I, I think we've, public, we've gone public with it. it. Kenneth Height is my editor. He's working through it, but he's nice. a busy, busy dude. Um, you know, it turns out that the last fifteen years I've been trained to write office memos, which does not make for pithy uh, 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 prose. Um, but he's fixing that right up for me. Um, but the point is, is that you know, of course, this, this is your classic fantasy heartbreaker, like D D, but X. Um, and i have a lot of different tweaks on x um but the point of this one is 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 that you know i want to give people enough rope to hang themselves by and the exhaustion mechanic is a great one i love it i love fatigue mechanics um, because they represent something that is real and visceral um and a little less abstract than hit points which if i were really gonna try and push the envelope with stuff and i'm not in this particular game um i like the idea of of thresholds and conditions and wounds implying conditions rather than some kind of ablative model where as long as i've got one hit point i'm cool um yeah i I think
0: i think yeah i I think you're right i want to I want to corroborate that anecdotally that session that I did the fatigue disease, it did both things. It, they had one, uh, encounter one fight after discovering that the whole party had been diseased and they decided to turn back Right. on, on the other hand, because they didn't have a level three cleric, which is they, they didn't have someone who could cast lesser restoration and, and heal a disease. Uh, they felt it it was it was if if they had each just taken 15 points of damage or 20 points of damage they would have been like and eh, you know let's blow our remaining healing potions and healing spells right. and keep going right right and but and, the, the right. disease they just understood
2: absolutely and and what what the grappling system does and um in dragon heresy i have a wounds versus vigor vigor is basically hit points wounds is things that make you bleed right because if you look at page 82 of the first edition dungeon master's guide gygax has some very very specific things to say about what hit points are um and and mostly what they're not is blood um, their, their luck their stamina They're your active defenses, and it's only after those are gone that that last thing that brings you to zero is actually a blow. Okay, fine. That's what Gary said on page 82. Great. However, (laughs) since I've played D&D since 1980 or 81, when my my buddy Howard introduced me to AD&D for the first time, Every time I have swung a sword, it has been called a hit roll, and every time I have exceeded someone's armor class, they have been hit, and my game masters have described it as fountaining blood, and, oh, look, there goes his intestines, and, oh, is that a spleen? Um, And that's just how you make it satisfying. It's not, oh, well, now he's worried because you were narrowly missed which is kind of what hit points are supposed to do, and especially in 5th edition, when a short rest, a long rest, and a kiss from your mom brings them all back in 24 hours.
0: Oh, don't get me started on that.
2: And that's that's one of the reasons why I separated Wounds from Vigor, because I know a lot of OSR players who just absolutely went insane with the short-long rest concept. Now, if short and long rest are bringing back fatigue, if they're bringing back luck, stamina, vigor, well, that kind of actually makes sense. Right, you're not going to get unbloody any faster, but you certainly will replenish your reserve. There's a reason why exercise science talks about the importance of rest. Um, so, so again, the the thing that we're trying to do here is not create a Dungeons and Dragons simulation. That would be stupid, and it wouldn't be fun. What we are trying to do is create the seeming of cinematic heroic reality, and when. You don't yank the needle off the record player of verisimilitude, which is my favorite word, the seeming of being real. When you don't yank the needle off that record player of doing that, your games rock on toast. When you do do that, what? What? What do you mean I got better? I had a two-handed sword from a freaking demon through my viscera, and I'm better? Right? And then you flip the table over and you say, oh, I'm going to go play something else. Um which is unfair because the fifth edition engine is wonderful. You can hang a lot off of it. Um, but it's really when player mental expectations, and I don't want to talk about like like improv theater immersion kind of thing, but when you're in the game and you're feeling it and you're spending the resources and then all of a sudden you're talking about, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to read about this because, right. And I need to read this rule because this is so unbelievable that I can't deal with what's happening here. The game stops. And that's exactly what you don't want, right? There's a reason why people like rules light play. And it's because the game never stops.
1: I ranted about, um, you said you didn't want to talk about improv theater and stuff. I ranted about that for, I think it was 45 minutes. Uh, cause I, I, People who say that role-playing games are storytelling get under my skin, and I felt the need to uh, ex- uh, to explain exactly how wrong
2: that was. <laughs> That's we really funny. To, I said, we
0: got to get a good storyteller game guy on here, uh, or gal, and and just have that out here on the show. We're gonna have to do that one day.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's there's uh, so interesting segue a little bit there. Um, I was involved in a game of Trail of Cthulhu. Um, and I was under the impression that my skill points in medicine, for example, represented great skill in medicine. And I was really torqued off that after, because the way you succeed on things, because everything is a 1D6 role, four or higher succeeds. Um, that's the basic rule there. Um, And if you want to have a higher chance of success, you spend your skill points, and they are gone for that adventure, maybe for even longer, because it's Trail of Cthulhu and spending your points is a lot like exhaustion. It's a finite resource, and it goes away. And I was really torqued about this, and eventually I was was asked to leave the game because I just wasn't getting it. Okay, fast forward. I have a two-hour conversation with Ken Haidt, um, who wrote Trail of Cthulhu and *Knight's Black Agents, and I complained about this, and he says, that's because you're thinking about it wrong. You have to realize that what *Knight's Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu are representing is a TV show or a movie, and what you have on your character sheet is not skill, it is screen time. So you may be the greatest doctor ever, but if you've only got a point in, in, on your character sheet, you are going to have a limited amount of time where the focus is on you saving the day. And then once that's gone, you're an extra. Um, and I'm still not going to go to that as my number one, yay, I have to do this system. But it changed how I interpreted the play of the game, and I could see how it would be fun. When am I going to get that spotlight time where I am the hero? And it's a much more uh, episodic TV show method as opposed to I'm going to crack open Conan the Barbarian and see what happens to them.
1: See, I, you, you just made me really dislike the central concept of uh, gumshoe. Uh, more than I did five
2: minutes ago. <laughs> which, which is fair. I, I think that for some people like myself, which is the reason I got my butt tossed out of the game, I'm like, if I'm a good doctor, I should always be a good doctor. I shouldn't be a good doctor some of the time. right? So I was like, I think we need a house rule where you are always getting four points and you can spend four if I have plus eight to it. And they're like, no, I'm, and that's fine because they were playing the game the way it was. But no, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's, yep. for pe- for people who like to assert narrative control over the story, and there are plenty of people like that, um, then that kind of mechanic is is useful. And there are times. Like, if you're going to do Saving Private Ryan, and you're going to do it in a gritty simulationist way, if you're charging the beach at Normandy, the most likely outcome is you're riddled with holes. That doesn't make for a great, so either you do one of two things. You've just successfully come behind a bunker on Omaha Beach, and so now you, you've, you've done the hard part, and now we're going to role play from that point out, or you give a metagame currency that says, yes, the bullets come right towards you, and you throw yourself away because they actually hit you where the shell was going to hit you, and you spend this metagame currency so that you don't die so that the adventure can go on, or you have the third way, which is you generate 50 characters, and the five that make it past the beach, which is your, your That's DTC That's what funnel. I was about to say. That's right, no, our funnel, style. Right? <laughs> Um, and you just lay waste to everybody. I think my first time I'd ever played Dungeon Crawl Classics, the entire party of 12 got flattened in a rock slide, and we all had to pull out our secondary characters. Um, mm. so, so there are kind of three ways to approach that, and the narrativist approach, which, by the way, is probably even more important in systems that are front-loaded. If you spend three hours or, or some very, very long time working up potential hero, and you get splattered in the first five minutes of the game, that's a pretty much a waste of time for all concerned.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan of front-loaded systems. But if it's a front-loaded system, it has to be like Hero, where it's all on the game master. If, if anything's front-loaded, and that's why, um, if I may rant about 5th uh, edition for a second, 5th edition character creation is almost perfect, but for two things. The character classes still have a little too much stuff at level 1. and your starting skills are based on up uh, some background that you pick.
2: A couple of them, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, where it's it, yeah, it like like every class gets two skills and then your other four, prof- sorry, proficiencies is the word, because they wanted to remind right. everybody of AD&D. Um, that you know the next four proficiencies come from a background where it's like they almost had like a quick start character generation system and then there you go.
2: Although in one of the uh, – uh, actually, I was just reading today that Jeremy, Jer- Jeremy Crawford said, look, if you want to go faster, just pick two skills, call those background skills, and move on.
0: Yeah, the, I, so, right. yeah, I did something similar. Yeah, I, I, made, I made quicker start rules for my game because I wanted people to be able to create characters. Right, well, and
2: especially if you're going to kill them off willy-nilly, you must do that.
0: Yeah, that's that's really hard to do in fifth edition without
2: not in without, Dragon Heresy <laughs> say, without
0: fudging stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, um, or or yeah. you know, replacing half the Wandering Monster table with uh, dragons. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. No, and that's kind of what what I wind up doing is in Dragon Heresy is is I say you have a wound track that's basically equal to your Constitution score plus your Strength bonus, and if you take more wounds than that score, you are dead. There's no make death. I mean, you can make death checks to hang on until you actually die. But if you take more wounds than, than that, you're dead. And if you take more than twice that, you are instantly dead. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Right, vaporized, uh, dismembered, yeah. et cetera. Or you're just instantly killed, right? You just you don't you're not hanging on. You don't get a chance to do last minute actions. I mean, there's a I'd say it's a great story, but it's not a great story. But there's a story of a police officer who was apprehending a uh, an arm robber, um, and he shot him in the chest with a shotgun um, at very close range, and basically remove the guy's heart and lungs. Said guy proceeds to pull out a knife or a gun, approach the police officer, and kill him. And then he died, because that's the kind of thing where you're making your death checks, and you have a couple turns of action before you actually expire. Um, so that is actually not implausible. It is frustrating, um, but uh, it, it's... Uh, it's the kind of thing, though, that the robustness of, of characters against pure death is is. Uh... Although I've heard both things, I've heard oh, we've got we kill characters all the time, but I've also I, more frequently I've heard your side of that particular story, which is, God, it's impossible to kill these guys.
0: Yeah, fifth edition's got got a character survivability issue, um, but to bring back to to the grappling book, dungeon yes. grappling, um, I. I want to give you – I'm going to give you a chance to, to, to defend this because I loved how you incorporated the existing mechanics uh, and we just went on about the um, exhaustion table. Sure, yep. But I've got there's – there's another side to that story that is not as good where uh, I've played in a system called Fusion, which is very similar to Champion's um it, it backs basically borrows from champions in cyberpunk 2020 and they had a really cool thing and i think hero system does this too they have this really cool idea where if you want to do like a, a mental attack and i don't mean like psychic powers necessarily but i mean like
2: like a presence attack
0: yeah a presence attack that's yeah, I'm exactly gonna stun, what it is.
2: I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stun you with my impressiveness yeah
0: yeah exactly or or like use that in place of you know, an intimidate check in com- in combat. You know, yes. an intimidate check just uses the same system as as attacking with your weapon. It just hits hits on a different scale at a, at a different target yep. pool of, of points. Um, and games that use that often turn out bland because because everything feels the, the same. same. Yeah. So so how so, does does the dungeon grappling rules that that you've written. Do they avoid that, or how do they avoid that, or, or how do they work
2: so, with it? Let me answer that in two ways. Um, f- the first is, I, I think there, there's two parts of it. The first part is that grappling, by and large, has been avoided because it's not fun, and it's not intuitive. And in swords and wizardry, if I make a grappling attack, you know, if I if hit you, try and hit you with a sword, the worst that can happen is I miss. If I try and hit you with a grappling attack, I can actually be grappled back if I lose the roll. So there's a lot more at risk. There. Um, And so people will avoid it, or it's very complicated, which is the 3E 3.5 Pathfinder thing. Um, In fifth edition, it's kind of weak sauce. You have somebody grappled, and maybe there's a feat in there that says you can make someone restrained. Um, And and so it's it's a little boring. Um, Although I know that there are some exploits you can do to make a grapple master that's an I win button, but grappling has never been an I win thing. Anyway. Why is it less bland? I think the reason why it is less bland is that because it uses both the same mechanics and the same currency, the damage roll, you can integrate it seamlessly with melee combat. I can grab you and then stab you, and I can use my control points to add to my damage. Well, that's cool. Uh. That lets you do something interesting. I can grapple you, and because I have 12 control points... I can choose how I want to spend those to break your arm and do injury. I could roll 3d4, I could roll 2d6, I could roll 1d12. I can choose the dice, Um, but basically the currency of control, because it is literally a damage roll and it is of the same scale, you can turn that into injury And actually, in the playtest game, that I'd say a playtest game, but it's really a demonstration game uh, because I had playtested Dungeon Grappling Potential. But at Gen Con, someone had grappled a hobgoblin. And somebody else was going to stab them. And they're like, can I use my control points and fling him into the sword, thus doing more damage? I'm like, that's freaking awesome, absolutely. I'd never thought about it until then. But the player was clever. And I'm like, you can absolutely do that. Um, In the second game... I had trees that were doing truly monstrous grappling attacks, like 2d8 plus 4 or something like that, or maybe it was even 2d8 plus 8. But the, enough that on a good roll, they could incapacitate a character in, in, in one attack. And then the players were like, well, I'm going to attack the grapple with a weapon. Does that remove control? I'm like, not only does it remove control, but it removes hit points as well. Um, because there are monsters that went like a glabrizo demon and, and other things, an alligator. When they bite you, Not only does their damage do hit points, because it's crushing your butt, but it does control points. It restricts you as well. Um, So I guess what I would say is because the in-game effects of these control points are so instantly translatable in your mind and in the mechanics to real-world things that you want to do, and because, even if I do say so myself, some of them are really awesome and fun and colorful, and damaging uh (laughs) let's not get away from the tactical part of it um yeah
0: i I get what you're saying if i can put it another way uh to use a term that um i like to use on mechanics i got from justin alexander actually the 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 mechanics are associated you you can observe like a character can observe how much control one character has over another so when you say i've got seven points of control everybody has a vague idea of what that means and so when you're acting on that uh, information your character's acting on that information and that's how you role play
2: that is exactly right there is an excellent um, um, association, to, to use your word, with the fact that someone has seven control points on a small creature and therefore they're incapacitated. The same seven control points against a giant ogre is an annoyance. And an ogre has a, or a giant or whatever, has a control maximum that is in the 30s and 40s and 50s. A kobold probably has a control maximum that is in the single digits. Um, oh, one last thing. One of the interesting things that is really fun is, you know, monsters are monsters because they are the archetype of something scary. Um, when you reduce monster to a collection of stats that has no meaning other than something to kill and get experience point for, they're no longer scary. Um, and some, it's the uncertainty. The reason you roll dice in combat is to provide uncertainty, and it's that tension that creates the the interesting. Um, things that you blog about and, and, and tell stories about and say, oh, this thing happened to my character. If you face 7 or 10 kobolds, by and large, it's just a matter of time until you kill them all, because they're whittling you down, especially if you're a high-level character. Um, they're whittling you down by a 1d4 plus 1 or some crap like that each time, and you're just hewing through them in great cleave and whatever. Now, if 10 kobolds jump you and each does 1d6 control, and your control maximum is 15 you are deeply deeply screwed so all of a sudden being surrounded by a pack of mid-sized creatures has a very different threat perception than because of associative mechanics between oh my goodness gracious you know these 20 guys half of them are going to hit if half of them are going to hit each of them's going to do 1d6 uh, control, I could be looking at 35 control points, and once I'm incapacitated, they can kill me as a free action.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, as opposed to a <clears throat> normal mob rule where you're like, well, I mean, so a bunch of them are going to have advantage on attacking me. I guess I could
2: soak that image. Right, exactly, and so all of a sudden, you had better change your tactics to not get surrounded you better form a line of battle you better put your back to something uh you better cast a battlefield control spell that funnels them in a way that that limits the exposure um and and so because that makes the situation evolve differently i think that it provides a much more dynamic and interesting set of circumstances that in a game that is basically a tactical game, like D and D, like Gerps, um, that you have to react to, and you have to do it dynamically, depending on how much control you have. Um, and there's a ton of different optional rules. Like, you know, if you get grappled by someone tiny and you're you're not um, you're not very well grappled, there's something in there called the brute defense, which you just kick them off. It's a you have to spend your reaction to do it. You don't even roll to hit because they've already grappled you, and you just basically punt them, and you roll your control and you subtract half your control from that. And if you shake them off, you're done. You're they're gone. They're 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 not grappling you anymore, right? And that's really what that is: is to pre- prevent five or six halflings from dogpiling a dragon, right? He just takes his reaction and shakes them off. Um, and and so there's there's a bunch of stuff like that that was put in as a what-if basis, but it's optional, right? It, it's, it's, it's really, I ran the two demo sessions with basically, um, you can grapple for control points, you can grapple to take away control points, um, and you can cause injury by spending your control points. And if the players said, oh, well, I want to judo throw this guy. Hey, I happen to have some guidelines for that. He has to be restrained first, but if he is restrained, you've got enough control to do that, you can throw him and do free injury plus whatever control you want to spend. So basically, you could do this humongous judo throw, spend all your control, add to that some free damage that has to do with throwing him down on his head, and then you've just thrown him on down and you let go. Or you can do some funky Aikido jiu-jitsu move where you retain some control and you throw him down, you do some damage, but you still got four or five or whatever control points on him, so you could spend enough to go from restrained to grappled, and that would be like you know you dump him on his head, but you still have his arm, so then you can follow up and do something else. Um, okay. Yeah. Right. So
0: that that leads me to I've got a I've got a question that 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 leads me to, and we've got one other question from the chat. So okay. my question, based on what you said, is. Uh, how much of this rule set is optional? Let's say, like my instinct is to, um, I'm looking for a rule set that's uh, not crappy, like the third edition or fifth edition rules. Like, make people want to grapple, but make it, you know, make it so that they don't have to grapple. Do you, do you have like a stripped down minimal set of rules?
2: So, and I guess what I would say is the uh, yes. I mean, really, what it and and that's sort of what I said is what what I what I would do is I don't have like the one pager. Uh, I just I just have the book. Um, but I guess what I would recommend um, after everyone goes out and buys this thing, um, the, the what I would recommend is read through it, see what the options are. But really, it's how do you attack? What's the difficulty class of your target number? Because it's different, right? Putting on a suit of plate armor doesn't make you harder to grapple because a properly made suit of plate armor allows you to do freaking gymnastics in it. It's just heavy, um, and it's not as heavy as people think. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's
0: one of the, the common misconceptions that, like, was retroactively turned into a game balance issue where they're like, well, we're we're gonna give people in heavy armor penalties to tumbling, because well, because they have heavy armor and so rogues should get to do something. Right.
2: Um, yeah. Sure, whatever. I, I mean, I I wear twenty pounds of chainmail every time I go to, uh, um, and it's a it's a mail shirt goes from my shoulder to mid thigh down to my elbow, and I just wear it because it's a little bit harder of a workout, but it's only twenty pounds, right? Yeah, um, that, so, that does
0: that, that does lead me to the uh, question from the chat though. Uh, yeah, please. Sorry, yeah. Edward in the chat asks, uh, do you also take into account uh, weapons like nets, bolos? I assume he's referring to yes, absolutely. Weapons.
2: Uh, there are there is a little section on grappling with weapons. Um, they do control points also, and that's one of the things that and so that would be like a ranged grappling attack. Um, there is a suggestion in the book that says, hey, the web spell, um, entangle all of those things are really grappling attacks and so should inflict control points instead of just automatically imposing a condition. So that way there's actually a reason to cast a ninth level web spell, right You could cast a ninth level web spell and you know in web demogorgon or you can cast a first level web spell and nail 12 cobalts or whatever. So yes, absolutely the, uh, there's a suggestion there that, uh, uh, on what that would do. Um, I don't know it off the top of my head. If you'd like, I, I will certainly look it up. I've, I've got it pulled up on my uh, on my computer, if you like.
0: Oh, no, that, that's
2: yeah. sufficient. But yeah, the, yes, wep- weapons, spells. Once you get to the point where you're looking at everything in terms of control, um, the uh, uh, things start to become more unified. And even if you don't have a rule for it, you can make stuff up. You're like, well, OK. Basically a net or something like that might be the equivalent of a martial weapon, but for grappling. And so you're gonna say, well my base grappling damage is probably thus going to be about 1d8. Okay, done. Because most martial weapons are 1d8 or 1d10. Yeah, so that's easy. You, right you know and, and, and actually the way that, the way that the base grappling damage is said is it's your hit die type. So your magic users do a D6. Your mid-level not-quite-fighter, not-quite-not is a D8. Um, The monks get to add their martial arts damage to it. So that's a D8 plus a D4. It goes up to D8 plus what, D10, D12, at a really high level. So the monks get to be pretty badass grapplers as as they advance in level. And then your fighters are D10s, and your barbarians, the Vikings, who are huge into grappling and throwing down and smiting, They do D12, and then you add your strength bonus because grappling is—if you've ever done it—it's you need to be strong. Um, but I threw a feat in there called Agile Grappler for people who really want to go to that cinematic. I can out dextrous my way. Um, well, I mean, because if you're the gonna grapple.
0: add wrestlers to your D&D game, someone's gonna be a luchador. It's gonna happen.
2: I I, I encourage this. Awesome. So yeah, I mean, and, and there's the agile grappler, or you can just say I don't care about the feet. You can either actually right in there, you can dot, you can try and avoid a grapple. Um, your 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 grapple DC is 10 plus your dex bonus. And really, what it is, it's 10 plus either your athletics bonus, um, your athletics proficiency, including your 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 uh, strength, or your acrobatics. So you can you can avoid a grapple. I I prefer to use strength because if if my grappling has taught me anything, is that there's a reason for, and fighting is, there's a reason for weight classes. Um, And there's a reason why those weight classes are so narrow. Um, And it really matters to be strong and how much muscle you have. And being dexterous is great, um, but it's really that dexterity is a force multiplier on your strength. So I like to give grappling based on strength. If you disagree with me, that's cool, throw in the dexterity. It, it won't break anything, and the game police will not show up and drag you away um, unless you play a story game, in which case Jason's game police will come up and drag you away in the dark of night. Yeah,
0: definitely. Speaking of which, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, Daddy Warpig, did you have any more questions for Doug?
1: Um, I had questions that would have fit better in the early in the show, and it's just as fine that we, uh, we didn't get to him. That's fine. That would have been a, a distraction from the cool stuff we talked about.
0: Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I think we're just about out of time, and uh, and we're slowly running out of stuff to talk about. Doug, is there anything else besides what we talked about that you really wanted to mention or talk about tonight?
2: You know, I guess I'd like to say, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I really do enjoy talking about grappling, um, not just because, uh, I, I just think it's deserved, right? I mean, the first story ever written down, Gilgamesh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh got to be buddies grappling over a woman. And that basic tone of how important wrestling and grappling is can be found throughout history. Um, Ajax and Odysseus grappled on the beach to see who was the most badass. Uh, Hercules grappled the lion. Um, over King Kong grapples the damsel in distress and drags her out, Right, It's all about the grappling uh, in, in a way. And if you look at the fight manuals, Grappling and melee combat were not considered different things up until fairly recently. Yes. Uh, if you look at a bare knuckles boxing match, if you look at uh, some of the uh, Patrick O'Brien stories, the HMS Surprise, etc.,
0: or if you just you know, watch MMA, where you if know you watch
2: MMA, that's right, um, if, and uh, that's really the natural order of things, um, and. Putting the mechanical basis of grappling the same as striking enables those two to be as seamless as they have always been.
1: I am designing a role-playing game, an entire role-playing game. It's not a modification. It's ground up uh, mine. But melee combat, the melee combat skill covers uh, unarmed combat, hand-to-hand combat, but also covers you know all your handheld weapons. Yep. Because they're the same skill. Because when you're using a sword, um, in D and D, in A D and D, they called it, you know, the pummel attack. Well, the pummel attack was named the pommel of your sword is right. named after a pummel attack because you're supposed to hit people with it. And you know, you block with your sword and slug them with your arm. It's you use hand to hand combat, you use your fists as much as you use your other weapons when you're fighting in melee combat. And so it should not be different skills. Uh, at least in, in context of the system I'm making, in context of GURPS, the whole basis of what a skill is is completely different. So,
2: Yeah, although in, in GURPS so much is based on dexterity that for in in a very real way, if you want to be a, a, a polymath in weapons, you buy up really high dex and then just put a couple of points in the weapons you want to be good at. And people have argued, um, I, I think with, with good uh, uh, basis behind it, that there should be some generic combat skill that represents movement and pacing and distancing and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then, gee, I'm particularly good at the battle axe. I'm a little less good at the sword or whatever um, is, uh, is, is can be layered on top of that if you wish. And you don't have to wish. Okay. So, But other than that, I guess I'd, I'd encourage people if I can do a, a, a shameless plug for, for Two sex.
0: Uh Please um, do. I, I I love to point out, actually, that uh, I've got your webpage, gamingballistic.com, in the show notes, as well as a link to your book. Plug away.
2: Yeah, no, and I've got two things in the works that I've talked about on my blog. One is a science fiction role-playing game uh, that is being written by David Pulver. We're still working on it. We're close to having a first draft. Um, he and I are working together to have something that is feels like a combination of of the way the the interactions that you would see in a firefly or serenity type setting um in a galaxy that would be or or a universe that would be more like a traveler-type thing, but without every single system being defined. So it's a lot more sandboxy. Uh, it's We're trying to make it a rules-light system, one pervasive mechanic. Uh, I'm looking forward to the playtest process, and that should be coming out uh, at some point. And then, of course, the Dragon Heresy project, which is where Gaming Ballistic as a company started, uh, is, is in order to bring that to market, uh, is in editing. I've got a gorgeous layout. I've got some covers. Um, I, uh, I, I did uh, pass around a promo flyer with one of the covers on it. Michael Clark, who's a great artist, um, did that and the graphic design and the layout for me. And it's going to be a gorgeous book. Um, and eventually it will kickstart and and I hope that uh, I can uh, win people's business and affection uh, enough to, to turn it into what I want to because it's going to be a big lift. Um, I have
1: two things to say real quick before we go. The uh, first one of which is the product we're talking about Called Dungeon Grappling is a role playing supplement and it's available on the uh where you can buy PDF download stuff, which is uh RPG Now and, and the other sites, uh, Drive Through RPG and so on and so forth. And uh, I think we're going to put a link to that in the description so you can go check that out. Um, and the other thing I want to say is Douglas was talking about actually going out and joining a HEMA historical European martial arts. Group, in order to practice uh, and learn how to fight, that option is not available to everyone. So, what I would encourage you to do is to one of the benefits of living in this day and age is that there are a lot of videos available on YouTube of people who do H-E- HEMA and will uh, happily demonstrate all kinds of things to you. What we were talking about today, using a shield, um, as far as being, it's your, being your primary weapon, it's being very, very active and using it to actively block... I actually ran into that concept a couple of weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, because of a YouTube video that uh, was on, and I got to watch how they used it. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's just as good as actually going out and learning how to fight yourselves and getting in real fights and and using edge weapons and stuff. But if you can't do that, YouTube is the next best thing, uh, and it's very, very worth your time.
2: you remember who the video was by?
1: Uh, I downloaded it, so I could probably find it very quickly.
2: Okay, so, so the videos that I would recommend checking out, um, there's, there's a couple sets. Um, the first place that I would go is Dimicator, D-I-M-I-C-A-T-O-R. Um, Roland Warzeca uh, is, is fantastic. Uh, he does a lot of – he's an artist. He does a lot of museum – um, he'll draw like in detail sketches of swords and weapons and stuff to capture the. He's big into historical recreation. He has fantastic videos. He has a Patreon, uh, and I and I strongly recommend checking his stuff out. Many of the stuff uh, that he's on, that is in this Patreon is eventually free. Thagen um, Thrand, so Thrand T H R A N D um, <laughs> does uh, does some really interesting stuff. It is um, in find a fact dimicator. Sword play with medieval shields. That's the one. Roland is a great guy. I've trained with him. Uh, it was an amazing video. Just loved yeah. it. Now, so he's Roland's the man. Now, there are other other videos that are also good and interesting. One of the interesting things about the era that we're talking about, which is the Viking era, is we don't know squat about it. There's a reason they call it the Dark Ages, and that's because people didn't write stuff down. Um, 700 to 1000 AD, there's very little known. We don't know how they fought, Uh, and the sagas were written several hundred years after. They seem to be written by people who knew what they were doing. The fighting moves that they describe can be made to work in large case, Um, but most of what we're doing is recreation archaeology by taking the equipment that we know existed or we suspect existed and trying to figure out the best way to use it it's really cool you have to study a lot you have to do your research but there's no substitute for picking up the stuff and saying wow i thought a sword and shield would have been heavier because my games always told me a broadsword was five pounds or some crap like that um (laughs) um and oh, really? A battle axe? My ba- the battle axe that I use at at, at uh, school, I don't know, pound 1.1 pounds. They're really light and have very little metal on them, because uh, metal was really hard to come by in that time period. So it's just fascinating um, to me how all that ties together. And and if you want a really Im- uh, interesting role playing game experience, um, step back and maybe don't attack the kitchen sink. I'm going to do a Viking era, or I'm going to do 14th century France. I'm going to do you know, uh, Japan, where you had the swords, but the guns were legal and, and whatever. Um, and you had all these cultural restrictions on who could do what. Rather than just, oh, here's plates and this and that. and right. right. I mean, the Vikings, for example, they would trade for mail, but it was really late in the period. Mostly they didn't wear armor, right? So you have all these warriors and stuff cranking around without much protection on. So it, it's just... The more that I find out about it, this is this fascinating. Um, now I'm letting my geek show, but this is the right place for that.
0: That's really interesting. In fact, uh, after the show, send me some links and and I'll put them on the on the show notes so everybody can check them out. Sure. All right. Well, that's about it for tonight. Uh, thank you guys for uh, coming on. My uh, co-host Daddy War Pig and uh, my guest Doug. Thanks, guys.
2: I appreciate the uh, having me on.
0: And thanks everybody for listening, especially our guys who joined us live in the chat. We've got some lively chat going on uh, tonight. Uh, for everybody listening, if you like what you heard, uh, you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com/geekgab. Search for Geek Gab on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, places where you can get podcasts for free. You can listen to other episodes of Game Night or our sister shows, Geek Gab and on the books featuring science fiction author brian niemeyer Uh, you can get all those at uh, at any of those places including youtube well that's it for tonight this is uh ben geek gab game night thanks so much for listening in until next time good night and game on